Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for being a God who desires relationship with us, who desires to connect with us. Father, we thank you for being a God who desires for us to rely upon you so that you can show your might and your mercy in our lives, so that you can be there for us, sustain us, and uplift us. Father, I pray that as we open your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your word spoken, your voice heard, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose, and that you will have your way in this place today. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Um, this morning we are in Parsha Naso, uh, which begins with Numbers chapter 4, verse 21, and runs through the end of chapter 7, uh, which is verse 89. Um, Numbers is uh, always a really fun book because we see um, a lot of Israel's, for lack of a better way of wording it, bigger mistakes occur in the book of Numbers. Um, And uh, as we look through it, we realize that Israel's journey, and if you look at the very first chapter in the very first chapter of Deuteronomy, we notice that about 38 and change, almost 39 years, or about 38 years of Israel's journey, is all taking place in the book of Numbers. Um, So there's a lot going on, and it's spread across a lot of time. So chronologically, it can be difficult to follow. Um, But as we look at this week's Parsha, uh, I really feel like the Lord has placed a particular uh, message in a particular direction on my heart. And uh, and oddly, it seems to just flow right from Tuesday night. So uh, hopefully everybody's had a chance to listen uh, by now to the message from uh, Shavuot, uh, Erev Shavuot on Tuesday night. Um, If you haven't, I recommend that you go back and listen to it. It's still uh, uh, available on our Facebook page if you want to watch the video or the podcast is available on our website at shalomeasternshore.com if you want to, uh, to listen to it that route. But listen to it, take heed to it, uh, and then re-listen to today's message because I believe that they go hand in hand together. And as we look at this Parsha, and hopefully all of you have read the Parsha, um, we notice that it's kind of like having a conversation with me. It's scatterbrained, right? It's all over the place. Um, and as we look at the, the Parsha, it begins first with the counting of the individual families of the uh, Leviim, of the priesthood, of the Levites, uh, with the Gershonites, the Merarites, uh, uh, and the uh, Kohathites, and the description of their roles as the uh, Gershonites are the ones responsible for carrying the actual curtains and tapestry and such, and maintaining those of the tabernacle, and the Merarites are the ones that are responsible for carrying the actual poles and the fixtures and so on, and then the Kohathites, which is a family that Aaron and Moses come from, the Kohathites are responsible for the actual furnishings of the tabernacle, and caring for them, and, and carrying them as they journey, and then you have the the Kohanim, the Aaronic order of the priesthood, who are the ones that are responsible for actually uh, working with those furnishings and standing in intermediation of Israel. And what we see is that there's a the number of a little over 8,000 uh, people that are part of the three primary families of the Levi'im, not counting the Kohanim, not counting the Aaronic order. And those are the ones, if you remember, originally God's intention was for the firstborn of every family to be the ones responsible for the Abadar, the service 
for that family to the Lord. And because of the sin of the golden calf, Israel was denied the firstborn rights in terms of Abadah service, and instead the, the opportunity, the, the actual function of that priest of the household then becomes one for the whole nation in the person of Aaron and his children, his, his sons in the order of the Kohanim, the priesthood. And uh, the Levites themselves also take on a part of that role. And so for instead of the firstborn, there was a Levite for each one, and then there was a couple of thousand left over of the nation of Israel that had to re- kind of redeem themselves of you with money. So as we look at the beginning of this parsha, we're looking at the, the Leviim and the counting the Leviim and their roles, and then all of a sudden it moves into a couple of other areas that are kind of out of the blue and have uh, appear to have nothing to do with anything. We go into purity, chapter 5, purity in the camp, and dealing with Zarat and kicking the people of Zarat out, which we read a lot about in Leviticus. Uh, and then we move into those who have sinned uh, in any way, they're to be pushed out of the camp and to be, uh, uh, or to make restitution for their sin, however that may be, and, uh, and then it continues on. And then we come to this really, really, really awkward passage in uh, Numbers chapter 5 about the jealous husband, right? Uh, anybody read this? Anybody find it not awkward? It's a very awkward passage, right? If the husband gets jealous over whatever purpose uh, that his wife may have cheated on him, he can bring her to the priest and tell the priest, I think, I think she cheated on me, so uh, do your thing. And she's then left on the hook to defend herself. And the only way she can defend herself is she has to respond as a repeat after the priest this uh, um, uh, oath that she didn't cheat on her husband, that she didn't commit adultery. And then from there, he takes that oath and the curse that he speaks over her should she have cheated. And he takes that curse and he writes it on a piece of, uh, of parchment, uh, on a scroll uh, with uh, ink. And in that curse, tradition tells us that the name of God was actually included in that curse. Uh, and then they take that scroll and they dip it in the water, the bitter waters that he's making that includes some of the dirt from the ground under the tabernacle that's thrown in the waters. And he washes the ink off of the scroll into the bitter waters. And the curse that, that was written literally becomes a part of the bitter waters and then she's to drink it. And if she didn't cheat, all's good, no harm, no foul, everything's good to go, right? Until she goes home and the husband has to deal with it. Uh, but no harm, no foul. Uh, 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 if, she, if she drinks it, nothing happens. But if she drinks it and she did cheat on her husband, then her stomach is going to basically explode and her thighs are going to, or uh, uh, thigh, I think, upper leg, whatever it is, I think it's where it is, thigh, uh, is going to decay and basically she dies. Now, tradition says not only did she die, but Scripture says if you're caught in adultery or if there's adultery involved at all, then not just the woman, but the man also has to, to be held accountable as well, right? The one who was with her when she was committing adultery. And so the tradition says, the, the Talmud says that when that would occur, that the person that she was uh, having an affair with also would suffer the same problem and die. Um, and this just seems really odd, really awkward. And, and I know a lot of people go, well... Why is it the husband can't be brought before with accusations of cheating? Why is it only the wife? And why do we have this? And why do we have that? And I believe that there's a really, uh, really a pertinent and truthful answer to that question. And I think it has to do with you and I. It has to do with the body of Messiah. And we're going to loop back around to it in just a second. But as we look through all of this and we read about the curse and uh, as the, the priest says the curse over her, she has to reply in agreement, amen, amen, may this curse become a part of me. She drinks the, the stuff and then everything goes on. And then the very next thing we read about in, in Numbers chapter 6 is the Nazarite vow. 
And the Nazarite vow is if somebody wants to dedicate themselves above and beyond uh, the faithful walk of a covenant-observant Israelite, if they want to dedicate themselves above and beyond that for any period of time, which normally would be somewhere between about 30 days and 100 days, sometimes longer. We know uh, Samson that we read about in Haftarah Parsha and Judges. Samson takes the uh, Nazarite vow for his whole life. He was uh, born as a Nazarite. He was set aside as a Nazarite from birth, and he spent his whole life as a Nazarite. We know that Yochanan Hamabil, John the Immerser was a Nazarite for his whole life. And we also know that Paul, the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, took the Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. We read about that, that he took Nazarite vow to prove that he wasn't teaching against the Torah or teaching against honoring the, the Torah. And so as we look at all this, we see this random passage immediately following the, the jealous husband. We see about the Nazarite vow. And if somebody wants to set themselves aside and as, as specially consecrated to the Lord and they, they can't shave their, their head, they can't which uh, obviously I'm out. Um, they can't shave their head. They can't uh, partake of anything that grows on the vine. So no grapes, no grape juice, no raisins, no wine. Um, they can't have any hard liquor and so on and so forth. There's this whole process that goes into it. And whatever the time frame is of their actual consecration that they dedicate, if it's 30 days, they've got to wait a whole 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, they can go back and they've got to shave their entire body, uh, especially their head. Then they've got to make an offering, and they go through this whole process to relieve themselves of this consecration oath, um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And by the time we get to Paul in the first century in the temple days, it was a really expensive oath to take. So for Paul to take that oath as proof that he's not teaching as the Torah says a lot. And then aside from that, the fact that the apostles or the Talmudim, the disciples, told him, hey, by the way, not only do we want you to take this, but we want you to pay for these other guys to take it too, as further proof. So now he's paying uh, for himself and other guys to take this Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow, in essence, what you do is you kind of put yourself in the service of the Levites. So you've got the Kohanim, the priesthood, you've got the Leviim, the, the uh, kind of subservient priests. I don't really want to word it that way, but they're the relatives of, the, of Aaron and Moses, but they're not the actual priesthood. They're not the high priest, priestly order, but they're still priests. And then you've got the, the uh, Nazarites who consecrate themselves. They dedicate themselves for a period of time to be that much more consecrated, if you would, than the rest of the nation of Israel. They have other commands they have to honor, and in some degrees they take on in service in the tabernacle and later the temple with the priesthood. And then towards the end of this Parsha, uh, or particularly at the uh, end of chapter 6, we read the Aaronic benediction, as it's called, or the Birchat Kohanim, the priestly blessing of uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 through 26, in which Israel is told, or uh, Aaron is told by Moses that God says, when you are to want to bless Israel, it says in verse 23, speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, thus you are to bless B'nai Israel by saying to them, Adonai, bless you and keep you, Adonai, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you you. I don't know, I turn his face towards you and grant you shalom or peace. Uh, and in this way, you are to place my name over B'nai Israel, over the children of Israel. And so I will bless them. Notice it doesn't say, and so Aaron will bless them. It says, Aaron, you are to bless Israel by doing this and speaking these words. And by you doing so, I will bless Israel, right? So if we look at this, what we notice is the prominent promise or the prominent uh, request, if you would, of the Birchat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, is what? That the Lord will reveal his face to us. That the Lord will place his face upon us. That he will shine his face before us. And we know that, especially from looking at Moses and Exodus, no man could see the face of God, right? 
No man could see the glory of God. We're not worthy to. But here, Aaron was commanded by God to speak that the Lord show his face to us, that he place his face before us, that he shine his countenance, his face upon us. In other words, that we have a direct interaction with the divine glory, the presence of God, the Shekhinah, with his divine glory, that we have a personal, literal, tangible experience with his presence. Now, we know that the presence of the Lord cannot reside within sinful uh, man, right? We cannot exist within the presence of sin itself because God is averse to sin. So when the nation of Israel uh, camped, the tabernacle where his presence dwelled was in the center, and it was protected by a barrier of the tabernacle, and then it was protected by a barrier of the Leviim and the Kohanim, and then the nation of Israel was around. But the presence, the Israel as in was the garden, Israel couldn't walk in his presence, but instead his presence resided in their midst. And so as the priest was to speak these words over the nation of Israel, we look at this and we go, but how is it that they are to experience his face? How is it they're experience his countenance, his glory when we're sinful, when we're fallen? If you look through scripture, and here's where I want to bring this all together and link it all together, and especially in linking to Tuesday night. Remember Tuesday night, uh, we were talking about the, uh, the beauty of Exodus 19 and 20, the uh, the original Shavuot, when the, the Aseret Hadi brought the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments were spoken by the audible voice of the Lord to the entire nation of Israel, right? And I mentioned on Tuesday night that that was actually a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, right? And the glory of the Lord that hovered over the mountains and over Israel was the chuppah, the canopy, the kippur, the covering that we stand under in a Jewish wedding, and that the Aseret Hadi brought the Ten Words were actually a ketubah, a marriage contract between Adonai and Israel and Israel and Adonai, and we said, everything that the Lord has said, do, we will do, and we, in other words, we said, I do, and, and Adonai said, I do, and we took him as our groom, and we became his bride, Israel becomes his bride, right? Then we look at Hosea, and Hosea is this really unique prophecy in which God likens Israel to what? A prostitute, right? And he calls the prophet Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry this prostitute, right? Uh, Jeremiah got a better gig than that, and Jeremiah's... Jeremiah wasn't so, you know, his job was a little rough, right? But he didn't have to marry a prostitute. So Hosea seems to have gotten a little bit worse. Even Jonah, Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, right? The Ninevites are who? There are people that hated Israel and wanted to wipe out Israel. And here's one Israelite that God says, hey, I want you to go to the Ninevites and, and speak. And Jonah's like, no, it's not going to happen. I don't want to die and they want to kill me. Two plus two equals I'm not going. And, uh, and he runs, right? But even Jonah had a better deal than, than, uh, than uh, Hosea did. And notice it doesn't say that he's to marry somebody that used to be a prostitute, right? She's a prostitute. He's to go and get her and marry her. And then they have a kid and she runs off and uh, goes back to prostitution. And the Lord says, oh, but don't worry. It's okay. It's okay. I know your heart's broken. I know you probably didn't want to be in this in the first place, but you fell in love with her. So I want you to go back and get her again back from prostitution and marry her again or take her back as your bride again. And then as we look through the, prophet, the prophecy of, of Hosea, what we realize is that the Lord is likening Israel to this prostitute and says, Israel is prostituting themselves, chasing themselves after things of this world, chasing after the ways of the enemy, chasing after the Baalim and the Ashderoth and so on and so forth, and chasing after all these false gods and living sinful, when in reality the Lord is to be our groom and he wants us as his own. And over and over again, we ran off prostituting ourselves with the ways of the enemy, and the Lord constantly brings us back as his bride and brings us back as his bride and brings us back as his bride. And he says, there will come a time where I will make you my own people. 
I will be your God, uh, and so on and so forth. And as we look at this, we realize that the connection here, and I honestly believe because if we look at Acts 2, it correlates, it's almost an exact mimic of uh, Exodus 19 and 20 and the way that things play, play out. I believe that Acts 2, as I said on Tuesday night, Acts 2 is a renewal ceremony. It's a renewal of that marriage covenant. God didn't divorce his first wife and go and, and, and uh, marry his second wife, right? He didn't divorce Israel and go and find the Gentile church and marry them. Instead, he renewed his vows with Israel. And just like at Mount Sinai, where it was Jew and Gentile that became Israel, in Acts chapter 2, and we see fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 10, as Cornelius is the first of the nations to be brought in into the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, the Lord has now renewed that covenant with Israel. And again, it's Jew and Gentile becoming one as Israel in the covenant of God. He wasn't getting rid of one bride and taking on the new model. He was renewing his vows with the love that he first had with his original bride with Israel. And so as we look at this Parsha, the Lord is a jealous husband. So we don't see anywhere in Scripture where we see this actually become a reality, right? We see the Lord says, don't pick up sticks on Shabbat. Somebody picks up sticks and they get stoned, right? Happens. We can see it. We can point blank, point it out in black and white and show you exactly where it happens. Uh, and, and all this sort of stuff goes on. We see that the Lord says, don't have other gods before, before me. They build a golden calf. And what happens? A whole bunch of them get wiped out. Uh, he says, don't, uh, don't, don't fear the, the Canaanites. Go in and take the land. They don't do it. What happens? A whole bunch of them die out, right? Uh, and all of these things happen, but we see here in the scriptures this whole account in Numbers chapter 5 about the jealous wife, or the, the jealous husband uh, the, the, uh, that's afraid his wife had committed adultery and cheated on him. But there's never an account in the scriptures where this actually played out in the way it says. It doesn't mean it never happened. We just don't see it in scripture. So I honestly believe that when we don't see it play out, that there must have been a deeper meaning going on here, right? And I honestly believe that the deeper meaning is that it's an image of our relationship as the bride of God, as the bride of Messiah, as believers. It's our relationship with him. Uh, the Lord is jealous for us. Matter of fact, if we read, his jealousy is fierce, right? Over and over again, he says, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. And so this whole passage in Numbers 5 about the jealous husband, I truly believe is an uh, 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 accusation, if you would, against us as the bride of, of God, as the bride of Messiah. The Lord says, hey, I'm jealous of you. He says, uh, here the, is the, the consequence, here's the circumstance. And we know in the Torah, whenever they're actually caught red-handed, both the, the, the man and the woman have to be stoned, right? Here, they aren't caught red-handed. The husband just happens to, to think it might have happened and takes it. And tradition says that if the wife had been uh, caught in the curse and died of the curse, that the man she was uh, having adultery with would have been killed as well. And we know that that makes sense because the reality is, is God doesn't unequally punish people, right? It's not, you know, he's got equal weights and measures when it comes to punishment. He doesn't go, okay, well, Mark, you messed up really bad, so I'm going to give you five spankings, and, and William, you did the exact same thing, but I'm only going to give you one spanking. It'll be okay, right? He doesn't do that kind of, if you do the, whatever the punishment is, a, uh, uh, whatever the crime is, there's a punishment that fits it. There's something that, that goes with it. We can see it throughout scripture. And so whenever the, uh, the, the wife would drink this bitter water, if she had in fact committed adultery, her stomach would swell, she would die. And the guy she was uh, committing adultery with, same exact thing would have happened to him. Just like when they were caught red-handed, both had to be stoned. It couldn't be one or the other. Both had to be stoned. And the Lord is calling us out, and he's saying, listen, you've, you've been a wayward wife. 
as my bride, you have been a wayward wife. You have cheated on me. You have committed adultery. You've prostituted yourself with God after God after God that are not real, that are not true, that are not of me, that are not of my people, that are not of my word, that are not of my covenant, that are not of any of the things that I have set out before you to live a righteous and holy life. Then we move forward into um, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1. We read this in our uh, Torah Torah service. John chapter 8, verse 1 says, But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He began, he came again into the temple. All the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The Torah scholars and Pharisees bring in a woman who had been caught in adultery. After putting her in the middle, they said to Yeshua, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. And the Torah Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now they were saying this to trap him so that, he, so that they would have grounds to accuse him. But Yeshua knelt down and started writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept asking him, he stood up and said, The sinless one among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he knelt down again and continued writing on the ground. Now when they had heard... Uh, now when they heard, they began to leave one by one, the oldest one first, until Yeshua was left alone with the woman in the middle. Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said, Then neither do I condemn you. Yeshua said, go and sin no more. Far too often in the body of Messiah, uh, believers look at this passage and go, hey, see, Yeshua's undoing what the Torah says because the Torah doesn't matter. Now this is the era of grace, and grace supersedes the commandments and the Torah and the, the curse of the law and da-da-da-da and all of this kind of stuff. And so Yeshua was actually going against what the Torah said. But the truth of the matter is that Yeshua was actually upholding the Torah. Because the Torah says that if they're caught in adultery, which in this case they said we caught her in adultery, if they're caught in adultery, both the man and the woman must be brought to be stoned, right? On top of that, the ones who caught them are the ones who have to throw the first stone. And it's just like I talked about with uh, the, the, the wayward son the parents have to bring to the priest and say, our son's too far gone, there's no hope, uh, you know, the, the, and the priest would have them stoned, and the parents are the ones that have to throw the first stone first. The parents aren't going to sell their son out like that. Uh, no parent's going to say there's no hope left for my kid, and second, the parent's not going to want to stone their own kid. So odds are they're just going to keep on and keep on and keep on hoping and praying that the Lord will bring him back to repentance and bring him back into relationship with him and so on and so forth. And the same thing goes here. In all honesty, if, if we were to catch somebody in adultery, if we lived in you know, Old Testament times and Tanakh times, because it's not something we can do today, capital punishment is not something you can do anymore, uh, but if we were lived in, in the Tanakh times and we caught somebody in adultery, odds are you're not going to be the one that wants to have to kill them, right? So even if you caught them, you're not going to want to be the one that brings them to the, the, the priest and says, hey, I caught them in adultery, because you've got to be the first one to throw the stone. You've got to be the one as the witness to be a part of their actual uh, uh, death, the part of their actual punishment. And who wants to take part in that? And so here what we see is Yeshua didn't actually undo the Torah. Instead, Yeshua upheld the Torah. And the way that he upheld the Torah is he said, first and foremost, where's the guy? You're bringing the girl to me, where's the guy? In order to catch her red-handed, that means you saw her with the guy, so where's the guy? Because the Torah says both have to be stoned, not just the, the, the lady, right? The other thing that he's saying is he's referencing in this context, he's referencing back to this week's Torah Parsha. He's referencing back to if, 
In fact, one of these guys might have been her husband because if she committed adultery, that means she had to be married, right? Otherwise, it's fornication. Language is important. If she committed adultery, that means she was married. So if the husband thought, may not have caught a red-handed, but thought she had committed adultery, why didn't you take her to the priest as the Torah commands? Why didn't you take her to the priest so that he could accuse her in front of the priest and the priest could go through the whole process of the bitter waters and make her drink it and she could either be proven wrong or right? Why didn't you follow Torah yourself? He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why didn't you follow Torah yourself? You're sitting here trying to get me to do something that goes against Torah. Had he stoned her, he would have broke Torah. And then he goes at the very end. He says, uh, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She says, no one, sir. Uh, and then he says, then neither do I condemn you. Yeshua says, go and sin no more. We are part of the body of Messiah. The body of Messiah is the bride of Messiah. Israel is the bride of God. We have always been the bride of God. The language throughout the Tanakh, the language throughout the Shah all shows this. Look at Song of Songs, Shir HaShirim. It is an all an image of us as the bride of God and God as our groom. Um, and, I mean, it's beautiful poetry about this, this romance, this love language, this relationship uh, between the bride and the groom, but it's an image of us as the bride and God as the groom. We have done nothing in our lives beyond constantly prostituting ourselves constantly committing adultery against God in our relationship with him as we chase after this or that and we go down this path or that path that's contrary to his ways. Anytime we sin, and sin is, as I say often, the definition, my definition of sin is simple. Anything that we do that damages the image of God in our lives. Anytime that we sin, we are in essence cheating on God because in order to sin, we have fallen prey to, to, to uh, um, temptation. And if we fall prey to temptation, that means we fall prey to who? The enemy. And the enemy is the exact opposite of God. So then we become prostitutes adultering ourselves with the enemy over and over and over and over and over again. And when we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, when we are redeemed, when we are restored, whereas we were due the just reality of death, right? We were due death, eternal death. It was ours. It was due us because we chose to walk away from the Lord. We chose to walk contrary to our relationship, our covenant, our marriage with the Lord. We were due death. Lo and behold, our person we were caught with or not caught with if it's just jealousy the man that the, that we were cheating on our spouse with which is the enemy is also due death and if we were to drink the curse the bitter water and we were to die so will he as a matter of fact he is going to die he is going to be spending eternity separated from the father which is ultimately what eternal death is, is a separation for the Father for eternity. But because we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, we are renewed, we are restored. And just like this woman brought before Yeshua as a means of trying to trap him to speak and teach against the word of God and against Torah, Yeshua says to you and I, because of his blood, the blood of the Lamb that was poured out for our sins, so that we could be restored, renewed, and re-enter the marriage covenant with our Lord. Yeshua looks at each one of us and he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more.
go and sin no more. He's not forfeiting Torah. He's not writing it off, but instead he's living it out. He's honoring it better than anybody else could have ever imagined because he's restoring us unto himself. The difference between what we read in Numbers 5 with the jealous husband and the Lord is the Lord is our judge. He is our judge. He has the ability to forgive our sins. He has the right to forgive our sins. And he wants to forgive us so that we can have and live in relationship with him. The whole reason the covenant was renewed, the marriage covenant was renewed in Acts chapter 2, was because the Lord loves us and cherishes us and wants a relationship with us. The whole reason that in Acts chapter 10 we see the, the Cornelius and the, the opening for the, the salvation of Yeshua and the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh should be given to the Gentiles is because God didn't create Jew and Gentile, He created humanity. And He called one family of humanity, which are the Jewish people, out to be an example and a light to the rest of humanity. He didn't create Jew and Gentile, He created Adam and Eve. And his desire is that all of humanity have relationship with him. That all of humanity find salvation in him. That all of humanity come to him as the adulteress that we are. Only capable of being redeemed and restored by the blood of the Lamb. That we may here go and sin no more. So that we can have an intimate relationship with him. So that we can walk faithfully in love with our groom. With the love that we first knew. random sounds. The Lord loves us and he cherishes us so much that he gave his only begotten son so that we could be restored and renewed and take part in the renewal of the vows of our marriage with him that were taken and accepted in Exodus 19 and 20 by our forefathers, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, which included Jew and Gentile. If you remember, Exodus says that when Israel came out of the wilderness, it was a mixed multitude that came with them. Or when they came out of Egypt, sorry, it was a mixed multitude that came with them. And then the language changes at Sinai. That mixed multitude of Jew and Gentile alike become called Israel. And are brought into the marriage covenant and contract as Israel being the bride of the Lord. And that covenant is renewed. Just as when couples renew their vows at their 20th or 30th or 50th anniversary or whenever they decide to, if they feel the necessity to, just like when we renew our vows, Acts 2 was the Lord bringing us into a renewal of covenant relationship with Him. He wasn't getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. Just like He doesn't kill us for every time we sin, but instead restores us when we come to Him in repentance. Why? Because He loves us and He cherishes us. And as believers, our example of both what to do and what not to do was found in the nation of Israel in the root of who we are grafted into. Because we can look back at Scripture and quickly see how often Israel messed up and how every time the Lord brought them back into himself and every message of destruction found in the prophecies of the Tanakh always came with a promise of restoration and a cry of God's heart for us to simply return in Teshuvah and repentance to him. And if we return, he will stay the execution. God's heart is never to punish us. God's heart is never to condemn us. God's heart is always to bring us back into himself. 
God's heart is always for his first love. You and I as believers in Messiah are grafted in both natural and unnatural branches, grafted in to that bride that was first married in Exodus and was renewed in restoration in Acts. I don't know about you, but that's an awesome realization. When we look through things like this Tarapash, and it seems so random and so scattered, and to see how God just seamlessly brings it all together. Because what seems random and scattered to us is whole and concrete and beautiful to the Lord. And the Lord wants nothing more than for us to be a part of that beauty, a part of that restoration, a part of the reality of that renewal that is only found in the blood of Messiah, and the infilling and indwelling of His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit. Amen? Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we often don't understand most of what you're doing. But Father, we thank you that you love us enough that you are constantly drawing us back into yourself. That you love us enough that you overlook our mistakes. That we may be able to humbly come and repent to you and be forgiven by you and be told to go and sin no more because your grace and your mercy overwhelms. Your grace and your mercy completely covers and restores and redeems our errors, our mistakes, our sinful ways and renews us in our walk and our faithfulness to you. Father, we thank you that you are ever faithful to your covenant no matter what we do and that your heart's desire is for us to return to faithfulness to you. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. Amen.